So welcome back. I just want to check in with you to see, were you able to track any hindrances during that walking period and what your experience was, if you were, anyone willing to share how that was for you? Or was the mind just perfectly pure and equanimous the whole time? <laughs> and there's someone over here in the, on their far side. Um, I, I guess I hadn't really thought before as much about um, uh, thoughts or planning as a manifestation of restlessness mm -hmm. and worry. So that's been really helpful mm -hmm. to me. So I was definitely able to notice that during the walking Great. too. And I and I think my um, in this series my uh, approach to walking has changed a little bit mm -hmm. too. So that I'm 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 still a little vague about it, but I'm just. I guess I'm just getting that I'm noticing whatever's happening yes. in my mind and not just trying to focus on the actual walking because that's hard to stay with because yes. there's so much else going on. Yes. So. Yeah, there is a lot going on, you know, and as I, we can often think we're doing walking meditation right, or, you know, we have a set, you know, we're, when we're just noticing some simple aspect and all this other stuff is happening right, and we're not right. being aware of it. So I definitely uh, encourage when I teach walking, do it as an inclusive practice. You can do it as a concentration practice where you just really simplify and anything other than the sensations of walking you basically relate to as a distraction, come back to the walking. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, and especially as a daily life practice, I think it's more helpful to be inclusive, mm -hmm. to include the sights and the sounds and the mind in the walking because it is all happening. <laughs> And if we're not recognizing that, then we're in this conflicted relationship. We're not actually fully present for what is happening. Great, thank you. Is there someone? Yeah. I'm not exactly sure of my experience. Mm -hmm. um, I was walking and then I realized I was thoroughly enjoying the smells and the, mm. the sun and mm -hmm. everything. And then I thought, that, well, that's sensual. Um, and then I didn't like the idea that that was a hindrance. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> I, and then so I, my mind just started to, and I thought, well, wait, does that mean um, that's my mind? I mean, it's, I'm, putting, I'm in putting interpretation to it. Yes. And I can have the feeling of pleasantness without all the, thoughts. Is that correct? Exactly. No, that's exactly <laughs> what I would have said that the, you know, it's a beautiful day today and there are lots of smells as the ground is moist. We had some rain a while ago, so it's lovely out there. To be fully present for that, enjoy it, that's not a hindrance. A hindrance is when, you know, the mind starts going, how can I bottle this and take it home? Or, you know, if only I was somewhere else where I could really enjoy this or, you know, how can I enjoy this more? Whatever then it moves into the territory of a hindrance because it's hindering you from being fully present and opening to it as it is. The hindrance happens when we attach onto something and try to claim it or manipulate it or push or pull it to be a certain way. So I think it's, a, it's very helpful to make a clear distinction between those two modes of 
relating to that. It's wonderful to, to be fully in your body and present. And what you can see is, you know, you go out there and, oh, it's so great. You, and there's this momentary enjoyment, but then the mind slips off, as I said, to, you know, wonder what it's going to be like tomorrow when I have to do this, or it's reminding you of another day when it was like that. You know, then we're in the, move, in the, in the territory of a hindrance because we're not fully present. To be fully present with the pleasantness of it, you say, even the joy, the beauty of it, but not trying to hold on to it or manipulate it. Yeah. There's someone at the back here. I think just to follow on to what was just said, I found I was very much longing to be somewhere else mm. or hold on to the day or go farther when I was walking. Mm -hmm. But then I stopped walking. And then I was able to come completely into the mindfulness, uh, you know, connection with the present, mm. the sounds, the sights, mm -hmm. the smells that I was not able to do when I was walking. Yeah. So. So the stillness enabled you to be more present. Yeah. Yeah. Because walking, you know, I mean, in some ways it's so simple, but it's kind of complicated. You're going somewhere, you have to make choices, you know, you're keeping upright, all the th things are changing as you're walking. And when we feel that sense of overwhelm, I'm not connecting, it's much better to stop and just stand and take it in, the sights, the sounds, the smells, and be present. You know, we're so used to walking, and that's why walking meditation is challenging for most of us, because we're used to walking to get somewhere. And so we're not really where we are. We want to be where we are going to. And walking is just a way to get there, just like driving is a way to get there. So we're not usually mindful to actually come back and be present for this experience. And, you know, to do it where in walking meditation, where you're just going back and forth, you're not actually going anywhere. People get so frustrated with it. It's why they don't do it. It's like it drives you crazy because you're not getting anything out of this, but it's a training to really see it as a training to be present. So thank you. The last one here at the front. I wanted to walk in the sun, and by the time I got out there, there weren't many places left in the sun. And I, so I got a place, and I, then I noticed there were bees. And I'm not usually afraid of bees, but recently I got, I encountered a um, yellow jacket nest and I got stung, badly stung by a whole lot of mm. yellow jackets. Mm. And I was walking and um, very, I, I was worried. Mm -hmm. And um, I took a close look and they were yellow jackets. And... Um, uh, it was a really interesting uh, experience of, I also know that bees smell fear, so mm. it was an interesting experience of um, being peaceful for a good reason besides <laughs> just being peaceful, Motivation. and also um, uh, being uh, careful. Yeah. Uh, or being yeah, uh, being aware for mm -hmm. a good reason, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. too, mm -hmm. and going back and forth, um, and also enjoying the feeling of the sensation, the sensual pleasure of the walking. Mm -hmm. I was really enjoying the walking. And then at one point, I noticed holes very close by, and uh, yellow jackets live, their nests are in holes. And... Suddenly, I got really worried, and I almost fell over. Ooh. 
So it was an interesting experience yeah, yeah. of balance and then really losing my balance. So it was, a, it was an interesting, wonderful uh, coincidence. Yeah. And, you know, a lot just in what you said, because there is a lot that's happening to us every moment. And part of what I'm going to be talking about next is, you know, how this orienting to what we choose to notice really affects how, what our experience is. So, you know, you're in the same general area as many other people, but had a very different experience because of this conditioning of the previous incident with the yellow jackets getting stung and how that started a whole process. Yeah. I, I just gave a teaching yesterday about dependent origination and that's exactly what you're talking about, all these cycles of things that are happening and how what we choose to notice really affects how we relate to the next thing that happens. And what the mindfulness inviting is to just keep tracking and notice when the mind's getting contracted into fear or worry and to see most of the time, if not all the time, how that's extra. You can still be cautious, mindful, take care without the contraction, without the fear and to actually stay connected to what's happening. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so let's, that, that was, you know, we're halfway through the day and we've only got through the first section, so I can see how this is going to go for us here. Um, we move on to the next two sections in the, the sutta. Uh, um, uh, in some ways I'll put them together and other ways talk about them separately, and that's the teaching on the aggregates, the five aggregates. Uh, the khandas, and then the six sense spheres. And in a way, you can put these together because they're different ways the Buddha talked about relating to this human experience. It's kind of coming from it more as in a process-oriented way or an experience-oriented way. But they're basically different ways of relating to experience. And in, again, through the in the suttas, the Buddha will use, often use one or the other of these to invite us back into presence and how to notice what's happening. The first one he has in the sutta is the teaching on the aggregates. That's a translation that's usually used for this word kanda or skanda in Sanskrit. There are five aggregates. And as soon as you use that term five aggregates, it sounds very technical. Most people, their minds just turn off and go, I don't understand this, it's too complicated. Well, I totally understand uh, you for thinking that because it is a little complicated, but each individual thing, each individual experience of these five, you know. It's, as I said, just different ways of kind of slicing and dicing the human experience. And again, in the Buddha's teaching, he was always pointing to look at where we get caught. See if we can highlight in experience how the mind might be taking hold of something and making something of it. And these were five aspects of experience that the Buddha commonly said we cling to. We create self-identity around. So what are these five? Again, it's on your list. Form, feeling, perception, um, mental formations or volition, and consciousness. I'll, again, this is a complex teaching, do whole day-longs, whole retreats even on it, so on it. So I'm just going to give the very cursory overview to give you a sense of what he's pointing to and um, point you to other resources if, if you're interested in this. Um, 
to deepen your understanding because there's no way I can cover it in the context of this day long. But just to briefly outline the five things that he says we should pay attention to in our experience. Form. Form rupa is the Pali. Anything in material form, everything, you know, the four great elements, earth, air, fire, and water, but particularly as meditators, it includes the body. So that's rupa. So you know that, right? It's the first foundation of mindfulness and all of the ways we can practice with that. That's the first aggregate of form. Feeling, vedana, feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. You know that too. That's the second foundation of mindfulness. So again, he's just... Within this list of the four foundations of mindfulness, he's going over the first two foundations and saying they're important to pay attention to. Now this next one, perception, sanya, is interesting. Perception is just the knowing or naming of what's happening. So I said at the beginning of the day, what the Buddha talked about was mindfulness and and being in the present moment, knowing what's happening. Perception is this faculty that names what's happening. So it's just, the word in the Buddhist technical sense is to know what a clock and paper and table and bell. This is perception. It's the knowing of something. I can't remember whether I said it today. I'm sure I said it in the first foundation. The naming of things changes our relationship to it. And also in the perception to recognize that we're perceiving all the time, any time where conscious perception is happening. But within this huge array of what is happening, we're choosing to perceive through intention, through volition, the next factor, only certain aspects. Certain aspects are arising out of this uh, myriad of things that we're choosing, having intention towards noticing, and that, that then affects what our experience is. So, you know, again, like the, sorry, I forget your name, but the woman had the experience with the yellow jackets. Because of that, her perception towards yellow jackets were heightened, and that's what she noticed out there. I mean, maybe all of you would have noticed if you had seen them, but if you didn't have an avert, you know, a, a triggered reaction, they would have just been bees or, you know, insects. But she, her perception was heightened to notice that they were yellow jackets then Sankara's mental formations are all the contents of the mind, basically the third foundation. All of the contents of the mind, um, um, and especially, uh, I think, Analayo calls it volitional formations because there's there's really a sense of these are the things that have intention behind them. Again, our perception singles out something, and then we have a response or a relationship to it. These are the volitional formations, sankharas. And then the last, so you know that too. You know, that's the contents of the mind and how we relate or respond to things. All of the movements of the mind, thoughts, moods, emotions, images, etc. So you know that. And then consciousness is a little more subtle, but it's it's the faculty of knowing that's pre-verbal. So it's kind of before perception. So there's a way in which you could, again, our archetypal dog has consciousness in the way that it knows, you know, all the smells and sights of of its experience, but it doesn't have perception in the naming of it, but it has consciousness. Consciousness is this very simple knowing faculty. 
Um, if we're alive, if we're conscious, even when we're asleep, we have some form of consciousness. If we're in a coma or dead, we don't, we don't have this kind of consciousness. So, you know, coma, I guess it's debatable, but certainly if you're dead, this is a big, dis- d- big dividing line between alive and dead is this kind of consciousness that has this brightness to it, this knowing thing. So it's a little more subtle, but I think you would know that. You know, you know this, this is what we cultivate in our meditation, is this, is this pre-verbal knowing, this sense of presence. Again, in meditation, we can sometimes distinguish between the object, so the breath or a sensation or a sound, and the knowing of it. Vijnana consciousness is that knowing. So a lot of teachings, practices around this, but what is the Buddha asking us to notice? What's the practice with this section of the sutta? Again, this is not rocket science. I wrote it out on the sheet. (laughs) What is he asking us to, to, to notice in relationship to this? Thank you. Gold stars. Why, why do you think he is asking us to notice or to relate to the aggregates in that way? It's impermanent. So to see they're impermanent. So we aren't caught. So we aren't caught. Yes. What, why? Well, also to notice which particular things we notice. To notice which ones we notice, yes. So, that, you know, and they're all happening. It's said that if we're basically alive, these are happening. And it's to highlight these aspects of experience. Because what do we usually do with these aspects of experience? Suffer. Because he says a particular reason why we suffer. We think, it, we think it's us. We think it's self. So this, you've, this is exactly it. He highlights them so we see their impermanent nature because normally we take them to be solid, we take them to be permanent, we take them to be self, and because of that we suffer. We cling to them. They're called the five aggregates of clinging. So what the Buddha is pointing to is look at these aspects of experience because you will see, and I have a whole teaching here which I won't go into, all the different ways we create self around them, around the body. This is my body. I like it. I don't like it. It's too tall. It's too short. It's too wide. It's too skinny. It's too this. It's too that. Or, you know, I like it because it's muscly or not, you know, it's got the right shape. We identify with it with our thoughts and emotions. That's a big place we identify. Perception's not so easy to see how we identify, but we certainly create a sense of self and reality out of what we're choosing to single out of experience. And then even consciousness, which is so subtle, that's often the, the, uh, uh, the meditator's last residing point of identification. You know, the I'm awareness itself. And that feels actually pretty good because I'm just awareness, but it's another place of solidifying what's impermanent. It's said that even consciousness is arising and passing all the time. With each sense door, it's arising and passing. So the Buddha is asking us to notice that these are actually impermanent. And it's pretty scary. You know, even the body, well, it feel, you know, I've had it for 55 years. It feels pretty solid to me, but... You know, we only have to do a few moments of reflection to see, well, it's, is it the same as yesterday? Well, kind of, but it's not exactly the same. 
a year ago, five years ago? No. And which direction is it going? In one direction. You know? <laughs> Gravity and uh, year plus years means one direction. Um, so you see it's changing. Everything is changing. So this is what the Buddha is pointing to as a practice, that we can notice this. So again, just like the fourth foundation as a whole, most of us don't set out to practice with the five aggregates. It's not, unless we know this teaching, you know, it's, we're just sort of aware of experiences. But again, here's another frame of reference for seeing where do you get caught. And again, to remember that the Buddha said, now as formally, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. So he was always, and someone said, this is where we suffer. Where am I getting caught? Where am I identifying? And what would it look like to release that a little, to have a different relationship? So this is what I mean about the Buddha teaching right here. This is where we can find freedom if we cultivate this different relationship to the aggregates. Yes, Maggie. You're probably tired of telling this story, but I changed my relationship forever to the aggregates. Would you talk about pandas in India? Oh, right. Uh huh. So the word kanda means literally um, a pile. You know, we use the we use the English word aggregate, but it just, they, they would talk about a kunder of sticks. And we actually were together in pilgrimage in India. Um, and the Buddha was known for taking very common everyday words and giving them a new meaning. So a kanda was apparently an everyday term, you know, telling someone, go and get us a kunder of sticks so we can have a fire and cook our evening meal. And someone would go gather them and put them together or, you know, gather the wheat or whatever, you know, into a bundle. And in India, one of the amazing things about India, even though it's very much in the 21st century in many ways, I've heard a statistic that more people in India have access to a cell phone than to a real toilet. Um, but there's lots of cell phones and billboards and computers, etc. But out in rural India, things haven't changed that much in many ways. And you can see people plowing fields with oxen and, and tilling the, the countryside in the way they probably did in the time of the Buddha. And one of the things you will see commonly is someone or thing, some, it could be a person or a vehicle, coming towards you with so much stuff piled on it that you can't actually see the person underneath. You just see these legs walking in this huge pile of stuff of, I don't even know what, twigs and stalks and wheat and rice and stuff just bundled up in some way or sometimes carts or even trucks. It's all overflowing and that's a kanda of stuff. And just to see, you know, that's what the Buddha saw. And he, in this, inherent in this word kanda is burden. You know, something that we gather up consciously, rope it all together, stick it on our heads or our backs or whatever, and lug it around. And you see this again and again, this sense of burden, kanda as burden. And just to have a sense of what it's like when we put the burden down. And just to remember, it's not that we put the aggregates down because 
the Buddha had aggregates. He had a body and, and thoughts and all of that kind of stuff. It's the clinging part that's the rope that we tie it all together, the, the way that we uh, hold on to it. That's what we let go of. And then the aggregates can just play. And we see them for what they are, arising and passing, but we've let go of that burden of carrying it around. You know, we often talk about the baggage. Well, it's kind of like that, the clinging to, the self-identification, the solidification. Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who's a, another one of our great scholars, he's a, often the author of these free books. I picked up a new one of his about rebirth. Um, he has a great article on uh, Kanda's, and I think he calls it a pile of bricks. Anyone? A pile of bricks? It's in the website Access to Insight, and he's, he's very practical about the Kanda's. Actually, this is an excerpt from something he says. He said, the aggregates are best understood not as objects, but as activities. For an important passage in the suttas defines them in terms of their function, form which covers physical phenomena of all sorts, both within and without the body, wears down or deforms. Feeling feels pleasure, pain, and neither pleasure nor pain. Perception labels or identifies objects. Consciousness cognizes the six senses along with their objects. Of the five khandas, fabricational mental formations, um, and now I use volitions, is the most complex. Passages in the canon define it as intention, but it includes a wide variety of activities such as attention, evaluation, and all the active processes of the mind. It is also the most fundamental khanda for, intentional, for its intentional activity underlies the experience of form, feeling, etc. in the present moment. So they're more processes than things. And again, this is, as a mindfulness gets more subtle, when not so much noticing things such as a sensation or a breath. We're noticing processes. So these aggregates are actually things we do to create a sense of self and how we create identification with them. And so our practice with them is to see them as arising and passing. What, what happens when we see them? when we know that that's their nature, how does that change our relationship to them? Hmm? We're not, attached not so attached, you know. We see it's suffering to be attached. If we want them to be a certain way or claim them or identify with them, it's going to lead to suffering. So we discover a wise relationship to them. So again, I recommend Tanisaro Bhikkhu's article, Access to Insight. I've given a whole talk on the five aggregates. Um, Guy, my husband, has too, so I'm sure many other teachers. Sometimes listening to a talk is a good way to get more information. Reading can be a bit dry, but you hear a talk, it's a little more lively. So really recommend checking into that if you feel it would be helpful. And I understand this can be complex, but uh, just to get a little deeper into it. So I'm going to just leave it at that for the five aggregates. Any questions, though, or Anything particular? I know it could be say a lot, but more to cover as we go on. So the, the next in the sequence is the sixth sense spaces. As I said, just coming at the human experience from a slightly different angle. The sixth sense spaces are just, again, our human experiences, the five sense doors of seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching. But in Buddhism, we include the mind as the sixth sense door 
The mind is an organ that knows mind objects, that knows the thoughts and images, and moods and emotions, etc. So, it's a, and it's bringing mindfulness to that as the, the, the practice goes, the, the practitioner understands the I, understands forms, and understands the fetter that arises dependent on both. So this is what the practice is with relationship to the six sense doors. So anyone want to reframe from your own understanding what the text is pointing to when it says understanding the fetter that arises dependent on both? What, what, again, what is the Buddha pointing to here? Well, really, uh, no. Okay. I mean, it, it is ultimately yes, but so if I, I guess that's a little complex. So, if you've read the whole text, you would have got some background to this word fetter, um, but, and it's a little complex because there are different understandings. Some people say it's the ten fetters that go before you, that go sub- sequentially before you're fully awakened. Um, there's another list of fetters from the commentaries. There's the taints, which is another version of how we get caught. I think the most helpful for us to, as practitioners to understand this word fetter is greed, aversion, and delusion. How we relate to experience through these, this filtering, basically, of greed, aversion, or delusion. So knowing that, how does, how, what is the Buddha pointing to? as we relate to the six sense doors. Yeah? Well, wouldn't it be um, the fetter, like say walking outside and enjoying the sun and then wanting more? Yes. Just more. Yes, it's a bit like the, the comment before about the enjoying being outside and want, you know, just to enjoy it is fine, but the fetter is I get attached to it. it you know, the, 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 you know, there's so much is impacting us at the six sense doors. And a lot of the time we're just looking, scanning for what do I like? What do I don't like? How do I get more of what I want? How do I push away what I don't want? And ignoring all of that that doesn't meet either of those two primary drives. So we're, that's the delusion part where we're just not conscious, not aware of those particular things. And so What's important to see in this, though, just as I said, we said before about the experience being outside and it was pleasant, it's not the experience, it's not the beautiful form or the pleasant smell that's the problem. We're not saying get rid of that, remove that, that's the obstacle. It's the relationship to it. The fetter is the relationship to it, the desire or aversion for it. That's where the suffering is. You know, in moments of freedom, we're there with, you know, it's beautiful outside or we're having a difficult experience, but if the mind is aware of that, the uh, image of driving through Death Valley and, you know, thinking, oh, this is horrible, I hate this. Oh, that's just the mind reacting with aversion. The aversion drops and there's just sight and sounds and shape and form and color and the mind can be in some kind of tranquility. So it's about shifting our relationship and understanding where we get caught. And again, if you've read this, 
Um, at first it was understanding the eye, understanding forms, understanding the fetter that arises dependent on both. So basically where do we get caught? And then it goes on to talking about, and see if this sounds familiar, the arising of the unarisen fetter, the abandoning of the arisen fetter, and the future non-arising of the abandoned fetter. So now does that sound familiar? It's, it's the same formulation. So here's another way we're caught, and we, we practice avoiding. If we know that we're going to, you know, if you're on a diet, you don't go to the all-you-can-eat buffet. You know, you just choose not to go there. Or you know that there's some place that really is going to be challenging for you. So you avoid that. If you know that it's present, you can just let it go. I'm, you know, I'm in the market for a new computer. Windows 8 has just come out. And I see all I'm, you know, if I see an ad, it's like, oh, what are they talking about? Is that what something I might want? Is that my new computer um, there? And so the mind is just selecting that and going to that. And then I see, and it's like, I'm, you know, just let it go. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll follow that up when I need to, to actually go in that direction. And the future non-arising of the abandoned fetter. Again, it's, it's clumsy English in a way, but it's, it's saying we've let it go. The mind is in equanimity of some degree or other. And there's awareness of how not to get in that territory. We know the tendency of mind to move to aversion or greed. And again, a lot of this is talking about meditation practice. You know, as we go through our lives, we're often in situations that are challenging for us or where there's a lot of temptation. Um, again, the context of this often given to monastics, this sutta probably was given to monastics who are practicing with a lot of renunciation. As lay people, we need to come to wise relationship to these kind of teachings. But it is talking about how valuable the practice of guarding the sense doors is. You know, something, not something that we would necessarily do in our daily lives. We're just in the world and relating to it skillfully. But when we're really wanting to cultivate the wholesome states and let go of the unwholesome, we can see that some choice, we can make choices that will support that or will make that more challenging. So it is also a lot about that. And again, in, you know, perhaps sometimes more appropriate to intensive meditation where we can really have a sense of refining our understanding. But this is a practice that we can use all the time because we're always, you know, um, being bombarded by experiences at the sense stores and just seeing, you know, the classic uh, cartoon image used to be, you know, I forget which character it was. It was not Wiley Coyote. I think it was a rooster of some kind where he'd see a female, you know, a, a hen and his eyes would bulge out on story like boing, boing, boing. And you can feel how you like that when it's something that you want that just going out through the eye door. I can remember being years ago at the Grand Canyon, you know, just marveling at at the space and the beauty and the depth and the colors and everything. And then hearing this voice behind me, you know, not someone talking to someone else that had a funny quality and looking around and there's someone walking towards the Grand Canyon, narrating the experience on a video camera. And you kind of, we weren't at a place where there was a fence. So I'm like, I hope you see, you're at the, you know, we're just seeing it so much through the eye door that we're not actually in the experience. 
So again, there's these reminders just to come back and be in the present, be in the body. So the simple uh, practice here is the, the wise effort in relationship to the six sense doors. I mean, already that's getting complicated. You've got four things in relationship to six sense doors. But to see, again, where we get caught, bringing that into mindfulness, seeing if we can let go, have a wiser relationship to it. So any questions, comments about that? Anything you've noticed in your experience with this kind of practice? Anything you don't understand? Yeah, Max. I'm, not, I'm just not understanding. So the eye, like I see something nice, but the eye's just doing what it's doing. Yeah, right? it's yeah. The mind, though. Right? Yes, it's exactly. So that's what I mean. It's not about not seeing. It's not about even not seeing beautiful things. But it's the 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 wanting. It's the fetter. It's the wanting. You know, oh, I want that, or I don't want that. I like that. I don't like that. You know, get that out of here. I don't like that. That's what it's talking to. It's not saying, you know, don't see or hear or smell or taste or touch, but it's the fetter that we're practicing with. But why, why is that pointing to, say, the eye door when it's not really the eye? It's still the mind, right? Like yeah, oh, yeah. Like but, the eye is not actually like the cartoon bugging out. You know what I mean? Like, right, but it's the eye consciousness that we're talking about here. That's the important thing. So there's the eye door, which is just literally the organ, right. and then there's the consciousness, the knowing of that, and then as it says, there's the fetter that arises dependent on both. Okay. The fetter, which is a, it's a mind object too, greed aversion, right. they're mind objects. So you're right, it's the mind. Okay. Mm-hmm. And again, it's related back to, you know, this is the third foundation. Oh, here's greed and aversion. But it, what's it relating to? Oh, it's this sight or this sound. So again, we're interweaving them. Okay. Yeah. More has always been the drug of my choice. Mm-hmm. And, and it comes in terms of food. Uh-huh. More has always been the drug of my choice, and it comes in terms of food. Can be sitting down to the most delicate scallop wrapped in prosciutto or pancetta you've ever seen, and there's one on a very large plate. I want six, <laughs> and it's it's that level of greed that yes. comes into it, um, and it's 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 in today's society, it's hard to avoid. Yeah, and I think you're pointing to what's such a common experience. We have something right in front of us that's beautiful or what we want delicious but the mind because it doesn't trust that once more doesn't isn't isn't actually able to be present for the enjoyment of what's right in front of us and you know once you start to notice it you see how it's endless we're looking forward to something looking forward to something looking forward to something it's here we're looking forward to something else wanting something or this isn't enough or you know we're so involved in conversation or some other experience that we don't notice that we're eating and we look down and it's gone Yes. I just I appreciated in the text they talk about latent tendencies. Yes. And I really appreciate that because it it, it gave me permission Here, that, to yeah, not the microphone. Sort of, oh. Talking about latent tendencies. Yeah, the, um, there, I guess, are several types of them, and it goes into great detail. Um, but what I appreciated about it was the fact that it said they're present in newborn babies. Hmm. So how can I judge myself? Yes. <laughs> if this was something that I was born with. Yes. They're dormant. Yes. They're in all of us. Yes. And I just really appreciate it. Yeah. That. And a lot, you know, a lot of this is about taking it out of the personalized in the sense of judging ourselves for having this. This is what the mind does. These are the tendencies of mind. And yes, there's, we've got to realize that the Buddha was always pointing to there is the possibility of a way out and freedom. 
But in this moment, this is what it's like. And I can't change that because it's the result of all of these previous conditions that, as you say, started very young. And if you believe in rebirth, uh, it started a long time before that. Um, so all we can do is bring our mindfulness into this present moment and relate skillfully to that. It's not about beating ourselves up or wishing that this weren't here. It is here. This is what the mind is doing. And there are all these movements, what do you call them, latent tendency, storehouse consciousness, whatever, that are operating. So our work is just, can we bring mindfulness to that? And again, this, that's the simplicity of it. And beneath that is all of these layers of how we might do that, all of these different skillful means of how we might do that. Yeah, come A, a question about physical pain. Mm. So under the body, if you're being mindful of physical pain via Vedana, mm -hmm. you would say, oh, yuck, aversion. <laughs> yeah, unpleasant. Mm -hmm. How is it different going at it through the this foundation? So, you know, again, they're all interwoven. I mean, I'm assuming there's a different way of getting... Well, you know, they're interwoven. As I said earlier, you can see Vedna is in, you know, it's in the, the aggregates. So it's right there. Um, you could be practicing with it as Vedna, and it's still the fourth foundation of mindfulness. But the practice there is to see its impermanent nature, that the pleasant unpleasantness is arising and passing away, or the sensation is arising and passing away, that that's, uh, uh, you know, I can get caught in, um, I'm a person that always has a short, sore shoulder, you know, so there's identification around that. You can see how we take that to be solid, but that's also impermanent. So it's more, again, context. In some ways, you know, you don't want to get too into, is it this way or that way? You know, it's like, what am I noticing and how do I relate to that skillfully? But the fourth foundation always sort of steps back and notices the bigger picture and notices identification. We're asked to do that, to that with the other foundations. If you remember, the refrain of all of the other uh, Satipatthanas talks about the arising, the passing, the arising and passing of these experiences. So it's there, but here it's highlighted as the main way we relate to it. So... Um, the fact, you know, here you notice that the aversion itself is what we can focus on instead of often in when we're in, uh, on a retreat, say, and we're practicing with pain, we're told just to notice it as sensation, pulling, tightness, da da da, da. Here we would be encouraged to notice the fetter of aversion that's arising in relationship to that, to notice, prioritize the aversion rather than the sensation. But there, I mean, within this, there would be so many, that's just one example, there would be so many ways you could go into it. You could see it, which we'll do this afternoon, in the Four Noble Truths, oh, this is suffering. Why am I suffering? Because I'm craving for it to be otherwise. So you could use the lens of the Four Noble Truths to look at that pain. So, lots. How did you know I'm a person with shoulder pain? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tell you about my psychic powers. <laughs> So I'm running 
behind. I was going to have lunch. I, let's just do, I was going to do a half hour sit, but let's just do a 15 minute sit before we go to lunch, just to quieten down a little um, to move into lunch. So we'll just sit for 15 minutes. And in this sit, I want us to focus on um, the six sense doors. <laughs> 